0: Welcome back to Navy Yard, Nats fans, and head on over to Walters. It's going to be a big time homestand for the Nats and everyone is gathering at Walters before, during, and after the games in the AC or under the covered streetery. Walters is the place to be. This week's reservations are going fast, including those for Sunday, July 4th, when Walters will be opening at nine in the morning for the early game. Make your reservations now at waltersdc.com slash reservations.
1: I got a chance to check out Walters in person this week. And let me tell you, it's going to be hopping this holiday weekend. Make sure to check out their self pour beer wall while hanging out with friends and watch every major sporting event on their numerous TVs.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data
3: Here's the set. The pitch swung on line into the right center. That's a base hit off the fastball. Bellinger plays it in right center. Schwarber, on a turn. Uh-oh. He'll hold up, and Schwarber hurt himself rounding first base. He absolutely did. It grabbed on him as he rounded the bag. I don't Here know comes. if he hit the bag awkwardly or if it happened just before that. And it looks like he's grabbing the back of the right leg and the right hamstring, trying to flex the knee, and he's just banged his helmet on the ground. And he is hobbling, coming off the field the Nationals really getting snake bit by injuries he's walking on his own power but really feeling the back of the leg he went hard around first making the turn and it caught him there he gets a hand as he comes off but how many more huge losses can the Nationals take out of their lineup the 1-0 from the left-hander is cracked in the air to deep right center field way back goes Robles looking up and forget about it a two-run homer for AJ Pollock The Dodgers have scored nine in the seventh. They lead ten to three.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July third, two thousand twenty-one. Along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInsports.com, I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Let us hope that what happened on Friday night is not a sign of what's to come for the Nats the rest of this July fourth weekend. A debacle of a night. A Kyle Schwarber got hurt. B The Nats lost a game in which Max Scherzer started and pitched well thanks to a massive bullpen implosion in a nine-run Dodgers' seventh inning. 10-5 loss to the Dodgers at Nationals Park in Game 2 of a four-game series in which the best that the Nats can now do is split. The 6-2, rain-shortened five-inning loss on Thursday night was one thing. This loss on Friday night was another. This was a bad night on multiple fronts.
1: Yeah, this was about as bad as you could draw it up. I mean, a major injury. We'll see what the MRI says on Schwarber, but to me, the visual there of him grabbing his hamstring, struggling even to walk off the field and just the look of disgust in his face as he walked through the dugout and down the tunnel. That said a lot to me that this is not just something that he's going to miss a few days or even a, a week or two. This is going to be a while. So that starts, of, of course, everything. They're already without Trey Turner, at least in the short term. And then, for a, a week or two we've seen them get by with the bullpen but we kind of knew eventually this might catch up to them and boy did it catch up to them in this one where the pitchers they had to put out there in the 7th inning against a really good Dodgers lineup the odds of them getting through that and maintaining a 3-1 lead were almost non-existent and they didn't just not hold the lead they left the game in a position where they couldn't even come back to rally because they were down by so much that was a bad sign not just for what happened in this game but for what could be lying ahead over the next couple weeks while they face the best of the NL before the All-Star break.
0: Yeah, that was batting practice. That was not pretty at all. And I want to get to that, and I want to get to what's going on with Max Scherzer as well. But the headline item is Kyle Schwerber. On the day on which he is named National League Player of the Month, this is somebody's idea of a cruel joke, Kyle Schwarber laces a two-out single to right center in the bottom of the second inning, but he in running to first base, Hurts his right hamstring, ends up leaving the game. It did not look good. Like you said, we'll see what the testing ultimately shows this injury to be. But I thought the visual in all of this was, first of all, Schwarber putting like no weight on that leg, but also Schwarber while being checked on the field, slamming his batting helmet on the infield dirt. That seemed to say it all. He knows this isn't some minor thing, or at least he suspects that this isn't some minor thing. Did you get any kind of an inkling from Davey in the postgame presser of, I mean, not that Davey would know the severity of this, but did you get the sense that Davey thinks that this is a serious injury?
1: Yeah, as much as you can read between the lines and the body language and everything else, I think they have a hunch. He was saying things like, He's pretty
0: wrapped up. You know, he'll get the MRI tomorrow and we'll go from there. Oh, You always got to think positive.
1: That was a pretty down group after this game. And, you know, sometimes you can just kind of tell. And that, I mean, that really grabbed him. That wasn't a, oh, he just kind of felt something finished out, you know, running down the line. Like, no, that was instantaneous. And just the fact that he could barely even walk off the field. A lot of times you'll, you'll strain a hamstring or hurt a ankle or something. And you can walk off the field. Maybe you can't run, but you can walk off. He could barely walk off the field. And I'm imagining knowing that dugout tunnel, there's a big set of stairs then to go back up to the clubhouse. He might have needed assistance just to get up those stairs. That's not good.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fear is that it's a tear. The fear is that this is a serious hamstring tear, but we'll hope for the best. It's remarkable, though, man, because at various points this season, we've said about the Nats, you know, they are healthy. Injuries are not the reason the Nats aren't doing well when they weren't doing well. But you've also had pockets of time in which the Nats have really been hit hard by injuries slash absences. Of course, the COVID situation early in the season And now all of a sudden, just over a handful of days, right? I mean, obviously like Steven Strasburg's been out for a while and Daniel Hudson now has been out for a while, but you know, Eric Fetty goes on the IL and you've had to put Jordy Mercer on the IL. You've had other relievers go on the IL in recent times. Trey Turner now has missed the last two games and now Kyle Schwarber is in danger of missing time. It feels like all of a sudden, and I know this can happen with injuries, but like all of a sudden the Nats have been hit hard by this injury bug. And you don't know where to turn. You're almost afraid to like refresh Twitter on a daily basis to see like who surprisingly was injured and got put on the IL today. And now in conjunction with that, you have injuries happening in games. It's not pretty. And this is like the worst spot of all with no off days and the Nats facing all these good teams heading into the All-Star break.
1: It's funny you use that term, Al, because I don't know if you heard Max after the game. Here's his quote about the injuries of in the team.
2: Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, I don't feel like we have an injury bug. We have an injury rat running around the clubhouse. So it feels like it's just biting everybody at this point in time. So, you know, look,
1: they know this isn't just any kind of normal thing. This is like a real run of injuries and bad injuries to prominent players. And yeah, you're right about you couldn't pick a worse time for it to happen, where you're already in the middle of a stretch with no off days where you're facing the best competition you're going to face, for maybe the whole season here, all in one stretch. And we said at the outset of this, they just kind of need to hold their own during this. We weren't even saying they need to thrive, they just need to hold their own. Well, that was going to be a challenge when they were healthy. If they're not healthy, it's really, really going to be a challenge. And, you know, the flip side of that is just like on Thursday, they were in a position to win the game, they were ahead. Now, there was still a lot of game left, but they were ahead. You got a great start from Max Scherzer in spite of all this stuff that's happened. And then they not only couldn't win, but lost like, in pretty dominating fashion in the end. So th- that does not bode well for what's coming ahead.
0: Yeah, so I want to talk about Max. I mean, the thing that sticks with people, right, is that complete disaster that was the top of the seventh inning. Sam Clay, Austin Voth, and Kyle Lobstein combining to allow nine runs. One of the worst innings you'll ever see a bullpen have. This was shades of 2017-2019 with those wretched Nationals bullpens. But what precipitates all of this is Max Scherzer, for a third time in three starts since coming off the 10-day injured list, not lasting very long in the game. And the knee-jerk reaction of, well, darn Davey, like, why did he pull Max so soon? No, Max very clearly was comfortable with being yanked in this game when he was yanked. I mean, watching the game on Masson, he did not put up much of a fight, at least as best as we could tell in terms of Max's reaction in the dugout. I know he did not convey any kind of, like, frustration to you guys After the game, Max is once again good for a third straight start since coming off the I.L., but again, he doesn't last very long. He lasts for just six innings on Friday night due to throwing 100 pitches. He is effective. Once again, he allows just one run in the six innings, has eight strikeouts, gives up just four hits, throws 67 strikes versus 33 balls. This is basically exactly what he's done in each of these outings since coming off the I.L., but he keeps not lasting long. His initial outing off the I.L., 3-2 win at Philadelphia June 22nd. Lasted for just five innings, one run in five innings, eight strikeouts, but just five innings, 106 pitches. His next outing, 5-1 win at Miami last Sunday afternoon. Lasted for just six innings, 102 pitches. Is good. One run, six innings, seven Ks, but last for just the six innings. And then we get sort of a repeat of all this on Friday night. What is happening here? Is he not entirely healthy? I know he brought up the idea of pitching on four days rest. I mean, this seems like a spot with the depleted nature of the bullpen in which you kind of push Max a little bit. Friday night, game two against the Dodgers, bullpens in a bad way, and yet they yank him after just the six innings.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot to this. Let's start with how he got to 100 pitches in only six innings, because that's, that set the tone for it and allowed them to put them in a position to have to make that decision. Well, 19 foul balls off him out of his 100 pitches. And this is a thing that happens to him a lot, and he, he talks about it. And he feels like there's not a lot he can do, that if hitters are good enough just to make contact and foul a pitch off, that's going to drive up his pitch count. We know he strikes a lot of batters out, so that's going to raise the pitch count. I mean, he got 19 swings and misses. That's a very good number in only six innings. He was throwing strikes, so it wasn't like he was, you know, falling behind in the count or having long at-bats necessarily. I mean, it's 67 strikes and 100 pitches, so that's, you know, two to one. That's good. You want that. So give some credit to the Dodgers, who are good at working at bats, and it's the foul balls. He doesn't get quick outs. That's not who he is. And so at this stage of his career, for him to really be able to go seven or more innings, he's either somehow got to get quick outs, which means not a lot of strikeouts, or he's got to ramp the pitch count up to 110 or 115. Now, I thought this was a night where maybe you would finally see that. We're well into the summer. He's feeling good physically, so I don't think that's an issue at all. But like you, I noticed the same thing. He didn't put up a fight at all. If anything, I think this was more his call than Davey's call. Now, knowing Max, here's the thing. He goes into a start and he has a number in his mind of how many pitches he's good for in that game. And he bases that on a few different factors. And some of that is when did he last pitch and how did he last pitch? And when is he next going to pitch? And when he has an extra day off in there because of an off day for the team, he will push himself more knowing he has another day to recover. But right now, he's in a stretch where he's pitching every fifth day. This was the third out of four of those that he's doing. And he said, based on his experience, he knows that that fourth start on normal rest without any extra off days can be a challenge and can strain him. So he went into this knowing he wasn't going to push himself past 100, at least not much past 100. And that's why he went to the dugout afterwards. And basically, Davey could tell. This wasn't Davey telling Max, no, you're done for tonight. This was Davey recognizing that Max knew he was done for the night, and they're making that decision based on how he is and how he's feeling. They're not making that decision based on who they have in the bullpen.
0: Well, look, far be it from me or any of us to question the great Max Scherzer, a future Hall of Famer, he's going to know his body better than anybody. I do have to say, though, I mean, you can't push it a little bit You know, this is only his third start since coming off the I.L. It's not like he's in the midst of having not missed a start and he's pitched on four days rest. You know, each of his last four or five starts, you've got the all-star break coming up. So it's only going to be one more start after this start in terms of having to pitch on four days rest. Who the heck knows what happens in that next start? I don't know, man. I think it's just disappointing you didn't see him push it. Like, I get it. He's Max Scherzer. He understands himself. And he's been great this year. I don't want to lose sight of that. The guy's ERA now is 210 on the season. His whip, by the way, is 0.85, which blows away what it had been in recent seasons. He's killing it on the season. But especially with what ended up happening in this game, I don't know. You have to pick your spots, right? This, to me, seemed like a spot to pick in terms of pushing it a little bit and just trying to go another inning or start the next inning and just see what happens. And there didn't seem to be not only much interest in that, but like you just outlined it seemed like it was predetermined that he was never going to try to push it. And you'd like to at least have the in-game flexibility of, you know what? I am feeling pretty good. This is a big game. We're in this game. I'm going well. He had retired nine of the final 10 batters he faced. It seems to me like that would have been a reasonable spot to try to push things.
1: Yeah, I agree. I thought as he's walking off the mound and I'm realizing, okay, this is going to be an interesting little conversation here. But I thought in that moment, he was more likely to come back than to be out. But I could tell immediately that, that wasn't going to happen. And if there was a start to do it, this is against this lineup, the way that game was playing out, it felt like, yeah, this is the time to do it. Now, he does this better than anybody. You know, I've never heard any other pitcher talk in the way that he does about this and to consider all the things that he considers. So, you know, for someone who's never had an arm injury, <laughs> anything he's ever missed has been because of like a neck or a groin or an ankle. So you've got to trust him. I do think it's a little interesting that he said, like, you can't base that decision off of what the state of your bullpen is, that you just have to do it based on what you are able to provide on this given night. I thought that was interesting because it seems like maybe sometimes you should be doing that, but he's saying no. Now, maybe it's also, hey, it's July 2nd, and as much as we want to think this is late enough in the year to start doing this, he knows there's still three months to go, and there may come a day down the road where you really have to do push it like that. I don't know. I thought it was fascinating. I thought that was kind of the story of the whole game here. But for anyone who was saying this is Davey pulling him from the game, no, this was Max dictating that he thought he was done.
0: That chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring. Only a one minute walk from the Silver Spring metro station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping off point to metro down to the game park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before metroing down you could also get silver branch beer at national's park
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Here's the pitch. Swing and a line drive, right center field, chasing Robles. It'll dunk in front of him for a hit, and two more runs will score. From third, Turner. From second, Bellinger. Taylor is two for two in the inning. He drives in a pair. And the Dodgers have scored seven in the seventh. And they lead eight to three.
0: And of course, in sports, the result drives the narrative. And the reason we're having this conversation is what ends up happening in the top of the seventh inning. Sam Clay, Austin Voth, and Kyle Lobstein were horrendous. And there's no other way to say it. Those three guys combined to allow nine runs in the top of the seventh inning. This is a franchise in the Nationals that has seen plenty of bullpen implosions over the years. This one ranks up there in terms of the bloodiest of the bullpen implosions that you'll ever see. Clay Voth, and Lobstein. Clay starts things off. He allows three of the four batters he faces to reach base. Voth comes in. He's even more of a mess as he fails to retire any of the four batters he faces. Lobstein comes into the game, does induce a fielder's choice for the second out, but then completely unravels gives up a two-out, two-run single to Chris Taylor for an 8-3 Dodgers lead, and then gives up a two-out, two-run homer to A.J. Pollock for a 10-3 Dodgers lead. The Dodgers in this inning put on a clinic when it comes to putting the ball in play. You had none other than Albert Pujols legging out an infield single. I mean, Starlin Castro maybe could have been better defensively in that spot, but that was not an easy play for Starlin to make. And Pujols, who, man, Looks like he's running in molasses, is able to leg out an infield single. It was that kind of an inning. I'd like to ask you, though, this, and I I got such a kick out of this. The guy who ended up following Clay Voth and Lobstein was Jeffrey Rodriguez, who was finally found. (laughs) He'd been on a milk carton. He ends up pitching for just the third time, the third time since the Nats selected his contract from AAA Rochester all the way back on June 12th. Uh, And Rodriguez pitches well, two scoreless innings with two strikeouts. Why the heck? And I don't know if this would have made any difference. Why the heck didn't Davey go to Rodriguez in that seventh? What is it with Davey and Rodriguez and this guy is on the roster and Davey won't even go to him and instead he keeps throwing clay. He's now thrown Lobstein multiple times and there's like this faith in these two guys and there's like zero faith in Rodriguez. I just, I don't get that at all.
1: Clearly there's no faith. I mean, he he is the last guy on the totem pole in that bullpen in terms of who the manager trusts. To pitch in situations of consequence. And you can debate that maybe that should or should not be the case. He's essentially a starter who was brought up here for an emergency start. Now he's still here for long relief. And when you're in the seventh inning of a three one game against a very good Dodgers lineup, Davey is saying, I'm going to go with the guys that I feel like are best, who are available to me, who are best for that spot. Now we've seen them with both try to move him into those high leverage spots. And this was a big one for him. And he failed, like you said, miserably. Didn't retire any of the four batters that he faced. Clay, I thought, got nickel and dimed a little bit, although he led the whole thing off with a double and he also hit a batter. So it's not like he's absolved completely from this. And then by the time you get to Lobstein, the inning's already over. I mean, it's it's a lost cause at that point. So he's just trying to put anybody in there to finish it out. So look, the options were not great. I also, you know, you could maybe make the case that Swero somewhere in there He's one who does have a little more experience in these spots, and here's why I think he might have made some sense, because here's the other thing that stood out to me about what the Dodgers did that inning. They put on a clinic in how to use your depth to absolute advantage. Dave Roberts sent up four pinch hitters in that inning alone, including a pinch hitter, Souza, who he then pulled back and brought in McKinstry instead after the pitching change. He did all of that to get the platoon matchup, as Max Scherzer called it, the line change.
2: Swing the bat from both sides, and then they can line change. Uh, As soon as you have a righty in, they can line change to the lefties, and what makes them so good is their depth. They have the
1: ability, like the Rays, to say, we have our right-handed lineup and we have our left-handed lineup and we're going to play the matchups. And I thought that was fascinating because how many managers would pull out all the stops? That's four-fifths of his bench options. And he used them all in the seventh inning of a game and said, we're not going to wait for a spot that might come later or might not come later. We're going for it right here to take the lead and ultimately put the game away. And they played that to perfection because the Nats wound up not with the platoon advantage at all in any of those spots. But Suero, a guy who's supposed to be good against lefties, and maybe could have been used against either, no matter what they would have done there. Pinch hitting-wise, we never saw him.
0: Yeah, and I want to get to the Nationals and their bench in a moment here. But Dave Roberts very clearly managed with an urgency. Question for you. If Brad Hand was available, why didn't he replace Sam Clay? It's a one-run game at that point, 3-2. As we have said many times, and I think as most people recognize by now, The game is not always in the balance in the ninth. Many times it's in the balance in an inning other than the ninth. In this game, very clearly, the game was in the balance in the seventh. Why not a lefty and Brad Hand instead of Austin Voth? And then, I mean, yes, things were unraveling by the time you got to Lobstein. It it was 6-3. I mean, it wasn't completely out of hand. Lobstein comes in and ends up being 10-3. But where's your ace reliever in a spot like this?
1: Well, here's the thing. If Daniel Hudson's on your roster, then I think you can do that. But... If you use hand in the seventh and then maybe into the eighth, somebody else is going to have to pitch before the game's over. And if you're winning that game, there's no more margin for error. It was, already, it was a three-to-one game. Maybe that was three-to-two. So, like, who else do you have that you're trusting for those later innings? Somebody else was going to have to get out in this game. And the Dodgers lineup is so good that you're going to be facing Mookie Betts, Max Muncy, Justin Turner in the ninth. So even if hand gets through those earlier ones, You're still going to be Voth or Suero or McGowan or somebody else is going to be having to close the game in the ninth against those hitters. So I get what you're saying. And I think there is a scenario where they have a full and deep bullpen and can do that. But where they are right now, that's just not even an option for them. I don't see how you do that and bring him in in the seventh and then ask somebody else to close without, you know, having a a lead of more than a, a run or two.
0: I think the argument would be it's better to put in someone you don't trust as much at the top of an inning, a clean inning, than in a tight spot like that. And I think that you worry about those innings when you get to them. And they never ended up getting to them. They saved Brad Hand for a spot that never came up. And, I, you know, look, if they pitch Brad Hand, maybe they still end up losing 10-5. But there's an urgency with the Dodgers, an urgency with the Rays. You don't always see it with the Nats. Right now, it's tough. I understand that. Their bullpen is not in a good way. But I just think that's something to think about it.
1: How many other managers would have done that?
0: I don't know, but that doesn't make it wrong.
1: If they have Hudson, Rainey, I think you can make the case for it. But when you don't really have anybody else, I get it. You're trying to to put out the fire now and then figure out what you're going to do later on. But somebody's going to have to pitch later on. To me, that's asking for a bit much when you have essentially one weapon at your disposal.
0: Well, what about the Nationals from a position playing standpoint on Friday night? So they do finally bring up an infielder here to try to deal with this situation of Trey Turner unavailable for a second straight game with his finger injury. Jordy Mercer was officially placed on the 10-day injured list on Friday with his quadriceps ailment. The Nats end up selecting the contract of Umberto Artiaga from AAA Rochester. The Nats signed Umberto Artiaga to a minor league deal back on February 4th. He's in his age 27 season. His only major league experience had been 41 games with the Kansas City Royals in 2019. He ends up being the Nat starting shortstop and number eight batter. I have to tell you, when the lineups came out, the first thing I looked at was, does Davey have Artiaga batting ahead of Victor Robles? Thankfully, he did not. (laughs) Thankfully, at least a little bit of respect was shown to Victor in having him bat ahead of Artiaga. But with this scenario, so why couldn't they have done this for the first game in this series? Call up Artiaga.
1: Um, that's a good question. I I don't know how aware they were of the guy at that point. I think they were going through all the options. So here's the weird thing. We don't really have the full story of this. But I think there was, they had reason to believe that Carter Keyboom was going to be the one to be called up. And now it turns out that he hurt his knee. And according to Davey, they don't know details of this, but he said that Kibum told them that he felt something pop in the back of his knee, okay? That's not good. Now, I don't know when exactly it happened or if he was forthcoming about it at first, but reading between the lines here, I think they must have thought that Kibum was going to be that the option available to them on Thursday. Then they found out he wasn't, and so then they had to turn to Arteaga on Friday, I don't know the mechanics of all this. I mean, this was, like we said last night, a confluence of events that you're hardly ever going to experience where they were scrambling like this. I also think behind the scenes they were trying to make some moves for players who aren't in the organization, and we may see one of them on Saturday in Alcides Escobar, the former Royals shortstop, who it looks like they have are in the process of acquiring for cash. So we may be seeing him. There may be more moves here to come. So I don't know. This was a worst-case scenario they found themselves in. Obviously, they didn't want to have to go with Alex Avila at second base on Thursday, but for whatever reason, they couldn't get who they needed here in time. We don't have the full story behind that, but I think it's pretty clear they were trying to get somebody and couldn't get it done in time.
0: I do hope, though, at least internally, I mean, they don't have to ever talk about any of this publicly. I hope internally they do examine what's happened here over the last 48, 72 hours and truthfully evaluate was this just a confluence of bad circumstances, or could we maybe have handled this better? Could we maybe have constructed a roster in a better way here? Because this is strange. First of all, that you had to do the Avila thing at second base in game one. Then you call up a guy who you could have called up for game one. Maybe there are perfectly acceptable reasons that they didn't call up this guy Ortiaga, but geez, if you could call him up for Friday, you couldn't have called him up for Thursday. And then how about this moment in the game on Friday night? And the game was done by this point. But I see this, and I'm like, what is this? Davey Martinez uses John Lester as a pinch hitter for Kyle Lobstein. Now, Davey clearly was saving Josh Bell, and Bell ends up coming up and lacing a double in the ninth inning. But, like, you're facing a team, right? We've talked about this. The Dodgers, ultra deep. They've got all this position flex up and down the lineup with guys who can play multiple spots. And here the Nats are in a game against the Dodgers using as a pinch hitter John Lester for Kyle Lobstein with two outs and the bases empty in the bottom of the seventh. And Lester, of course, does nothing. He strikes out on five pitches. This is a second consecutive Friday night, by the way, on which Davey pinch hits for a reliever with a starting pitcher. Davey in that 11-2 loss at Miami last Friday night, June 25th, pinch hit for Justin Miller with Joe Ross, and Ross struck out on three pitches. And I'm sure Davey has his reasons, but it's like, when you try to construct the argument of the Nats aren't very deep and the roster isn't well constructed, these are the snapshots of the season that you look back on. Alex Avila, your backup catcher, as a starting second baseman. Joe Ross as a pinch hitter on one Friday night. John Lester as a pinch hitter on another Friday night in a game against the Dodgers. Can you explain that? Like, that's just such a bad look, especially against a team in the Dodgers that's like the class of the majors when it comes to roster construction and building up a situation to where you never have to worry about depth or lack of options.
1: So I think this goes back to what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now. Why have they needed a 14-man pitching staff, leaving them a man short on the bench? And you can say, well, it doesn't usually come up, and now ah, the pitching staff was hurt, and they needed as many guys as possible. But we've just talked about how Jeffrey Rodriguez has not pitched hardly at all. Aside from you know Brad Hand, who they have to use when things are going well all the time, not like other relievers have been overworked. So they didn't need that. They needed another bench player to help account for these different things that can happen. And look, you go into this game with a four-man bench, and then one of those four is Trey Turner, who clearly isn't available because of his left finger. And then a starter goes down in the second inning to the injury, and now another member of your bench is in the game in Para. Well, you have to know that these things are possible, that you can have injuries in the course of a game and you have to be prepared to deal with whatever might come up. And, you know, you always have to prepare for the worst case scenario. And in this case, the last several days, they have not been prepared for that at all. Now, yes, some of it is they just don't have the players at AAA ready to call up that can really make a difference for you. But that's an indictment as well in not having that. There are plenty of these, you know, veteran Guys with big league experience who you can stash a triple A and be able to call up when something happens like this. And you're constructing a roster and a bench that has players that are very limited in what they can do. Josh Harrison is the only member of their roster who can basically play infield and outfield. The Dodgers have like five of those guys. And boy, has it just been so apparent and on display the last two nights about the difference there. The Nats' only hope is to use their 10 best players and run them into the ground and try to get everything they can out of them. And when they start going down, they are really exposed for their lack of depth.
0: That, to me, was embarrassing on Friday night. When they sent Lester up as a pinch hitter, that's the best you got. Like, that's what you do in a game against the Dodgers. John Lester is a pinch hitter. Again, I hope there's some real reflection, some some self-evaluation here going on internally. The Nets don't have to come out and tell us about this. But I hope they're really taking a hard look at this and saying, really? Really? We just won the World Series two years ago, and this is where we're at. We have to use John Lester as a pinch hitter against the Dodgers in a game two of a four-game series. It it should not be that way. That's not the way that things are supposed to be. The Nats are better than this. They're smarter than this. They should be ashamed of having to do something like that. I really couldn't stand that on Friday night. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big
2: Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big league talent right here in Bethesda's
0: Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July.
3: Now the set of the pitch. Breaking ball, hit of the air. Center field, Robley starting in, moving over to his left, makes the catch. Runner tagging. Here comes the throw to third, could be close. He
2: is out!
0: From center to Starlin Castro. And that turns out to be a double play. Well, I don't want it to all be negative. I do want to mention this. That throw by Victor Robles, that was some throw, man. That outfield assist, I mean, there weren't many highlights for the Nationals in this game, but that was something else. We've had the Robles conversation many times. It's, of course, been a very bad season for him offensively. But that throw he makes, top of the first inning, catches a Max Muncie flyout throws out Mookie Betts at third base on a bullet of a throw to Starling Castro for a double play. I mean, we have seen Robles cover a lot of ground. We have seen Victor make some really good catches, but he, of course, has an arm. And (laughs) if you're going to draw up a throw, especially to get a guy like Betts who can run, that's about as good as it gets, that play that he made in the top of the first.
1: Based on everything that happened later, it sounds like this was just a terrible night at the park. And the thing is, for about two innings, it was a great night at the park. The weather was beautiful. It was a good crowd, 27,000. They were into it. They were into it on that play, of course, the Robles play. And then they were really into it in the bottom of the second as they score three runs to take the lead. And you had a hit by Castro, a double by Gomes. Robles reaches on the air by Justin Turner, that two-run score. But he also forced the issue by having speed down the line and then making it all the way to third base. And that put him into position to then score on the sack fly by Arteaga. Talk about a good quality first plate appearance for him. And I hate to say this because it's, it's kind of mean on Jordy Mercer, but one plate appearance into his Nationals career Humberto Arteaga had as many RBI as Jordy Mercer's had in 77 plate appearances this year. So, we're talking about depth and what they have off their bench. Well, boy, if that wasn't telling right there. So, I mean, they're up 3 0, and everybody's feeling good. Robles is having a good night. Everybody's kind of pleased with the way this might go. And then Schwarber, a couple batters later, singles and hurts his hamstring. And it was like from that point on, the air came out of the balloon, and it was a disastrous night the rest of the way.
0: Yeah, that's why. Seven inning games for the Nationals, man. That might be the way to go. They might have had a better <laughs> shot in this game. You know, Robles, we've seen him do this multiple times this season, essentially induce the error with his speed. Like, again, you're reading minds here, so maybe Justin Turner makes that throwing error anyway, but Robles sends that ball down to third baseline. Turner makes the catch, but Turner, knowing that Robles can run, I think gets screwed up on his throw. And it ends up not being caught at first base, two-run score. And like you said, Robles does an awesome job of making it all the way to third. So, you know, in a box score, it goes down as an 0-4 night for Victor Robles. But I almost feel like sometimes if you do that, and I guess it's hard, like, how you're going to ascertain when a guy causes an error versus when he doesn't. But it's almost like Victor deserves credit for that in some way. Like, he got on base or something like that. Because he did a great job inducing the error and then making it all the way to third base. And obviously, a couple of runs end up scoring it in that spot. All right, man. You know what aces are supposed to do. They're supposed to stop losing streaks. And that's now dropped the first two games of this series to the Dodgers. And who's pitching on Saturday night to stop the losing? But our guy, Paulo Espino, the biggest spot yet for our guy, Paulo facing Clayton Kershaw in game three of this series at Nationals Park, Saturday night 7:15 on Fox. I can tell the way you've been talking about, Paolo. You're concerned about this. You think this could be a reality check, a bucket of cold water being dumped on our guy, Paolo, on Saturday night.
1: I mean, look, he has done an incredible job to this point, and there's no denying what he's meant to them and what the cult hero status he has accrued, and deservedly so. But he's facing a challenge in this game that he has not faced yet. We have just talked about how great the Dodgers are, the depth the talent, the ability to work at bats. This is going to be a severe test for him. Hey, I hope he survives it because it would be wonderful for him on national TV to make a name for himself. He was being interviewed before the game on Friday, by the way, by Ken Rosenthal. Paolo has arrived. I know we like to think that we're, you know, the ones bringing his profile up. No, he got interviewed by Ken Rosenthal, who's doing the game for Fox on Saturday. This is his moment. I hope he rises the occasion but I would not be shocked if he struggles with it. I don't think anybody should be shocked. And it's not necessarily a reflection of him if he can't get the job done. This is a really, really tough assignment for him.
0: Clayton Kershaw this season, over 17 starts, has an ERA of 325, has a whip of 0.98. Paolo's ERA is better than Kershaw's, and his whip is better than Kershaw's. Now, Paolo has thrown far fewer innings than Kershaw has, but still, Paolo comes into this game, 202 ERA zero eight seven whip. I think our guy is going to do it. I can't wait to see this. And if he does do it, the hype gets taken to an entirely different level. Saturday night is the night you want to make sure you have put in your order for the secret weapon t-shirt. Get yours by going to natschatpodcast.square.site, Natschatpodcast. Dot square, dot site. What a 48-hour period for the Dodgers at the White House meeting the president and then facing Paolo Saturday night at uh, Nationals Park. You can always email us at the NatchChat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We got this email from Jim in Alexandria, Virginia regarding Bobby Bonilla Day, which is many of you listening know, but in case you don't, every July 1st, the day on which the Mets pay Bonilla $1.19 million as part of a deferred payment arrangement that lasts until 2035, writes Jim, with all the deferred money the learners have committed to, will the Nationals have a bunch of Bobby Bonilla-like days down the road? We could still celebrate Scherz Day and Strasmus long after they've retired. I really enjoy the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thanks. So, of course, part of the humor of Bobby Bonilla Day is that Bobby Bonilla ended up being a complete flop with the Mets. Uh, Obviously, Max Scherzer has not been a flop with the Nats, nor has Steven Strasburg been a flop with the Nats. But that is a good point. With all the deferred money, we're probably going to have something similar to this, maybe not nearly as big of a deal, but down the line with what the learners are going to owe the likes of Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and others in the years to come.
1: Well, yeah. Now, let's point out for those who don't know, Bobby Bonilla has not been a Met for, what, 25, 30 years now? And he's still being paid by them. So this is a severe deferment situation. Here's what the deal is with Max Scherzer. I'm looking it up right now. His 2019 through 2021 salaries, it's $105 million, are deferred without interest to be paid in seven $15 million installments each July 1st. So it's Bobby Bonilla Day, same day, July 1st, from 2022 to 2028. So basically starting next year on July 1st, for seven years, the Nationals will be writing a check to Max Scherzer for $15 million. And that's if he's not on the team. Whether he is or he isn't, if he is on the team next year, he's going to be making a salary anyways, on top of all that. So they're going to be paying him long after he has finished playing here, not quite to Bobby Bonilla extent, but still for quite some time. In Strasburg's case, he has $80 million, a little more than $11 million per year, deferred with 1% interest, payable in equal installments of $26.666 million on July 1st in 2027, 28, and 29, plus an interest payment of nearly $4 million on December 31st, 2029. So this is going to go through the rest of the decade that they're paying Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg. We have no idea what that's going to do to their payroll down the road, if this is going to be a factor or not, but the credit card bill has been pushed well down the line for them and they're still going to be paying it up until the end of this
0: decade. And never forget when it comes to the learners and deferred money, even John Lester in his 1-year 5 million dollar deal has deferred money. This is the greatest deferred money nugget of all time. John Lester's contract, 1-year 5 million dollars, 2 million paid in 2021, 3 million paid in 2023 via a deferred signing bonus. Even a 1-year 5 million dollar contract with the Nationals results in some deferred money the contract for the starting pitcher slash pinch hitter supreme, the Chad Tracy of the Nationals these days, John Lester. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. Keep the feedback coming. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast, email the great Tim Shover's. You can find him at Nats chat Podcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
3: The fans settle back in
0: after the seventh inning stretch and Bobby Bonilla launches one to deep right. and right center